stand, let us bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your holy word. Bless it to us now and give us understanding of it. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Once again, Remembrance Sunday brings its familiar services and observances in memory of those who fought and fell in the two world wars and in other conflicts. The Queen at the Cenotaph, the wearing of poppies, wreaths laid at war memorials, parades, banners, solemn music, all point up the special character of this important day. And what is more, we are brought face to face with the fact of death. The deaths of those who gave their lives for king and country in the two world wars. And we think too of those who died in the Korean War of the 1950s, the Falklands War of 1982 and in Iraq in recent years. To name only three of many conflicts. And we think of those who are still suffering and making the supreme sacrifice in Afghanistan today. I hope that the relatives of these brave men and women find some comfort in knowing that their loved ones died so that others might live, that their sacrifice was worthwhile and not pointless and certainly not forgotten. Many war memorials have inscribed on them the words of Jesus from John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And many a Remembrance Sunday sermon has been preached on that text. To my mind, Remembrance Sunday highlights two contrasting facets of human life. First, man's pride and aggression greed and folly which all down the centuries have led to countless wars but secondly in contrast human heroism and self-sacrifice in the face of suffering deprivation injury and bereavement despite all the suffering that war unleashes there are times when it seems that war is the least of several evils. With the benefit of hindsight, it seems right to have gone to war to challenge Hitler in 1939 and to prevent him from adding our country to the long list of nations of Europe which he had overrun. If some people here today and the parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins of others here had not rallied to the cause in different ways, our lives would be very different. And we, in all probability, would not be sitting here in peace and security 73 years on from 1939. I have the responsibility today of speaking on Psalm 90, which formed our first reading. It's the only psalm attributed to Moses. And in the first two verses, he expresses in graphic terms the one certainty, which is the title for this sermon. Lord, you have been our dwelling place 
throughout all generations. You are the one. You are the one certainty in an uncertain world. How could this be so? How could generation after generation of believers and worshippers of God hail him as their dwelling place? And verse 2 gives the answer. Before the mountains, the earth and the sea were created from everlasting to everlasting, from one eternity to another. He is God. Then it seems that as Moses' mind dwelt on the theme of years and generations, he was almost overwhelmed to contemplate the enduring nature of this God he had dealings with and the total and utter contrast between him and us. So in verses 3 to 6, he speaks of how fleeting and feeble we human beings are. Even the strongest and longest lived among us. See the language he uses. We are dust. We are like yesterday or a few hours watch in the night. We are like grass, new in the morning, fresh and green, but by evening parched and dry in the hot Palestinian sun. Moses presses the point home in the next section of his psalm, verses 7 to 10, as he describes how fearful and frail we human beings are. God seems to be even terrifying and oppressive as Moses expresses his thoughts. He talks of God's anger, his indignation and his wrath. And for our part he speaks of terror, with our sins and iniquities exposed to God so that we bring our lives to an end not with a bang but with a whimper, a moan. It seems that Moses has a very pessimistic view of human life speaking of our years and especially the years of those who exceed their allotted span of threescore and ten as bringing trouble and sorrow. And I wonder if today's octogenarians would agree with what Moses says. If Moses wrote this psalm towards the end of his life, he'd had 40 years of privilege being brought up in the Egyptian court, <coughs> then 40 years keeping sheep in the wilderness, and then another 40 leading God's people with all their perverseness and disobedience out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and to the borders of the Promised Land. And you could say that when Moses spoke of trouble and sorrow, <clears throat> he knew what he was talking about. Yet at the same time, Moses had had the privilege of many close and intimate conversations with the Lord, both on Mount Sinai and in the worship tent, the tabernacle. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend, we read in Exodus 33. And so verses 3 to 11 of Psalm 90 depict a God who is wrathful, overwhelming, terrifying when confronting weak, sinful, short-lived men and women. 
But fortunately, that's not all that Moses has to say about the God of Israel. He is a God who responds to prayer, especially prayers like those in verse 12, expressing humility and a desire for wisdom as we lead our lives. He prays in verse 13 that God will relent and have compassion on his servants. In other words, he is praying that God's wrath will not be his final word, but rather his mercy and compassion will be. And in verse 14, he prays earnestly that he and his fellow worshippers will be satisfied with God's unfailing love. In the morning, when maybe the dark night of God's anger is past, and the bright sunlight of his love brings joy and gladness to the hearts of his people. And what is more, he asks in verse 15, that the years when the people had known nothing but affliction and trouble, well deserved though that might be, would be matched by happier times in which they could rejoice and be glad. Then in his last two verses, Moses focuses on the deeds of the Lord, verse 16, and on his character, verse 17. He wants the Lord's deeds to be seen and recognized by his servants. Perhaps Moses was thinking of the great events of the Exodus, such as the plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, and all the evidences of God's love and care during the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. He's wanting his people to reflect again on these amazing events, to realize afresh their significance, and to pass on to their children the deeds and the splendor of the Lord. Then in the final verse, he prays that God's favor, rather than his anger, will rest on his people. And having spoken earlier of how fleeting and transient we human beings are, Moses here asks that our labors, the work we do in the Lord's service, will be effective, established, and enduring long after we have passed from this earthly scene. At the beginning, I referred to the fact that the Queen and others will be at the Cenotaph this morning. And I want to bring you back to the Cenotaph and to point out what you may know or you may not know that the word cenotaph actually means empty tomb. It is a memorial. No one is buried there in the middle of Whitehall. Moses was all too aware of human sinfulness and alienation from God as this psalm shows. But in his day there was no permanent once and for all solution to the problem. Many years after the time of Moses, Jesus, the Son of God, appeared on earth and suffered and died a horrifying death on the cross. And there he laid down his life uh, in an act of voluntary self-giving, not because he was a sinner, but in order to pay the penalty for the sins of other people. So Jesus took on himself 
bore in his own body and soul the righteous wrath of our holy God and so guaranteed forgiveness of sins, new life, a way back to God and the gift of his Holy Spirit to all who are prepared to give up trusting in themselves and put their faith and trust in him. But that's not the end, for on the third day after he was crucified, the tomb of Jesus was found to be empty to the alarm of his disciples. But later that day, Jesus himself appeared to them, gloriously alive, raised to life again by the mighty power of God. And what is more, Jesus remains alive this day at the Father's right hand in heaven. And one day he will return in power and glory to this earth as king and judge and saviour. So the cenotaph, from one point of view, reminds us of the tragedy of war and the folly and sin which lead to war, the kind of sins which, according to Psalm 90, attract God's wrath and indignation. But from another point of view, the cenotaph, with its meaning of empty tomb, points us to the grace and mercy and forbearance of God and the loving self-sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, leading, yes, to his death, but beyond that to his glorious resurrection, leaving the tomb empty. On Remembrance Sunday there are many emotions to be found. There is sadness and maybe for some a renewal of grief. Pride in the courage and self-sacrifice of those who died or else survived but with shattered lives. There is thanksgiving for what their sacrifice achieved and for what we enjoy because of it. There is also solid hope based on the one certainty of the Lord who has been our dwelling place throughout all generations and a Lord whose love for his creation went so far as to send his own dear son to an agonizing and painful death and to bring him back from death. That resurrection, that empty tomb, guarantee for us and for all who trust in him the reality of forgiveness and new life. May God give us all that certainty, that hope and that joy, not just today Remembrance Sunday, but every day of our lives, through our living, loving, liberating Lord, Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen.